The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. How are you doing? Good, Father. Great to be here. Well, yes. Thank God we are. Father, let's get into some emails. Question number one. When the priest gives you penance after confession, does that penance fully satisfy God's justice for those particular sins which were confessed? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, is it possible? If you prayed the prayers with great devotion, even perfect love for God, then it could. Yes, it would. Uh, satisfy uh, the um, temporal punishment due to sin, but... We have to remember, uh, the temporal punishment due to sin varies from sin to sin. For example, uh, temporal punishment has to do with the amount of damage we do in this world and what we're responsible for, right? And uh, so, uh, you know, th there's a difference between having a thought of, of doing something wrong, okay? And then, on the other hand, doing it in front of a hundred people and scandalizing a hundred souls. So uh, the fact that the priest may assign three Our Fathers and three Hail Marys as a penance, uh, I think ordinarily would not satisfy all the temporal punishment due to sin. Um, as I say, I mean, the devotion with which one offered those prayers would make a difference, certainly. But uh, if one were to say, well, does it necessarily do so? The answer is no, it does not. Um, then what is the penance for? Well, it is to satisfy for some of the temporal punishment due to sin, no doubt about it. But it is also uh, a matter of showing our willingness to accept some type of penance or sacrifice uh, to offer God uh, you know, in retribution for our sins. It's, a, it's an indication of our true um, contrition for sin, that we accept the penance and we fulfill it well. And it also uh, provides a, a foundation for graces to come for the future because we're asking God no, not only to grant, well, he did grant for forgiveness for the sins by the fact that we confess them with true contrition for sin. So, you know, if one had the intention to do the penance, but for one reason or another was not able to do it, it's not as though that would stand against him forever and ever, you know. It's not as though that would invalidate the confession or the forgiveness, you know. Um, one has to have the intention to do the penance and do it respectably well, you know, um, in order uh, to, you know, draw the, derive the benefit from the confession. But uh, again, as I say, with the intention, if one is not able to fulfill it, it doesn't unforgive the sins. Um, so while there's a connection between the sins committed and the penance given, or there should be in any case, um, th th they're not so closely connected that, uh, you know, that there's an equivalence between the sin 
and the temporal punishment due to it on the one hand and the penance on the other, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so generally speaking, I, I think no. Yeah. Um, we, that's why we have indulgences and other benefits that God has given us to draw from for the sake of the temp uh, making good on the temporal punishment due to our sins. We don't just rely on the penance given in the confessional to do that. Okay, <clears throat> then question number two. Does Father Jenkins think that Pope Pius XII made a mistake in forming the IOR because of the traditional Catholic Church's prohibition of usury? Well, for those who don't know, uh, the IOR is actually the Institute for Religious Works of the Vatican. It's the Vatican Bank, essentially. And uh, the Vatican Bank was actually established um, as, as a convenience and a benefit for uh, um, those who, you know, would want to uh, trust in the integrity of the Vatican, right? But also uh, to help to fund the works of mercy that the Catholic Church would do around the world. So, you know, you'd have... Uh, the seven cap, uh, corporal works of mercy, the seven spiritual works of mercy, carried out by, for example, the missionaries throughout the world and the various agencies of Catholic relief to those caught in terrible disasters, uh, struggling behind the Iron Curtain under communist dictators and so on, uh, all benefited from, from this work. I, I, I gather that the writer is saying, well, because there was an interest charged on loans, that this constitutes usury, and therefore, uh, in instituting the IOR, uh, the Pope was actually, in a sense, canonizing or instituting li li uh, usury within the walls of the Vatican itself. You know? And... Uh, and actually, no, that, that would not be correct to look upon this as either an, a violation of the church's prohibition against usury or, for that matter, a, a, um, <coughs> the acceptance of usury is fine. You know, it didn't justify usury, nor did it violate, violate the church's principles against usury. <coughs> usury, usury is really, uh, strictly speaking, uh, taking more money than one is, is entitled to. It's an injustice, okay? Um, usury was roundly condemned in sacred scripture and by the church itself. But it in involves a kind of usury that is taking advantage of people in need. Uh, for example, if a, if a poor person um, needed money for whatever reason, you know, they, they went to a, a uh, money lender and the money lender said to this person, well, look, you need food, you know, you need clothing, you need this, necessities of life, and you come to me for money, and I'll lend you the money, but I'm going to demand 10, 20, 30% interest over the next month or over the next year, whatever. I demand to be paid back in this amount of time, and I demand to be paid back the principle that I'm lending you plus so much extra. And the church absolutely condemns that, taking advantage of people in, in genuine need. <clears throat> One reason is because there is no title to have that, that extra 10% or that 20% or 30% of money. There's no title to that. 
They have no claim to it just because they lent somebody money. Um, now, not only that, there's another, another problem with usury like this. And that is, um, it, it almost demands that there be inflation, so to speak, because, you know, people lending money demanding 10%, 20%, 30% more in return, someone has to find that money somewhere. And, uh, either they get it from someone else somehow, uh, in which case would it might even inspire, inspire theft or incite theft in them, or you in, have to increase the money supply to, to provide the extra money needed to pay back the users, right? That means the money supply is increased, inflation happens, and that means you're robbing everybody because the value of everybody's money is affected by inflation. The value of everybody's money is decreased. So, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas made the example of counterfeiters. And he said counterfeiters were worthy of capital punishment. They were worthy of death. He said by expanding the money supply, they were provoking inflation, robbing everybody in the whole society at one time. And uh, they were like thieves on a grand scale. And that had to be stopped for the benefit of everybody in society. So uh, probably not politically correct today, but political <laughs> correctness today is the devil's political correctness, obviously. So, um, but on the other hand, it would not be usury, for example, if, if I lent you money to start a business. As you're saying, now I want you to invest in my business, invest in me, and there's a certain risk involved. Not only that, but you're taking the money that I have that I, let's say, in a in a free enterprise system like this capitalist society, I could actually use the money myself to start my own business and do something myself. I can, I can actually benefit from money. I'm giving up that benefit and accepting the risk because I believe that you have a good idea and that you have the industry and the intelligence to carry on out, carry it out. And I see the value of it because I see not only could you increase your own wealth in the process, increase mine, but you're producing something, you're actually producing a, uh, a product that is a benefit to people. Something you could not done, you could not do, excuse me, something you could not do unless someone was willing to provide you the capital necessary. Uh, you need to make an investment, you need to purchase things, you need to uh, buy equipment, whatever it is you need, right? Uh, you need to have the engineering done to, to actually produce something of value and benefit that might not even exist right now, or produce it more economically so more people can have it, more people can benefit from it, whatever it is. That's a, that's a very positive thing. So the church did not condemn that in terms of usury because that was not going on back then. You know, uh, Money was not being used for that back then. Um, so uh, in terms of investing money in a project that can benefit everyone in the society. I mean, that is not usury. Now, if I were, I could make it so by saying, okay, I want 100%, uh, you know, uh, profit for my money over such and such a time, you'd have the right to turn that down and go find you know, somebody else to be more reasonable. But that would make, you know, I'm still trying to take advantage of the situation. So I have to be careful uh, of that. It's still possible to be usurious 
even when you're, you know, in, uh, investing in something. Now, in, in modern day terms, we have these hedge funds and all the rest. And a lot of this is just buying and selling money. It's just uh, basically uh, manipulating money. It's manipulating the money supply. And that's all. That's usury. Yeah. This is what people think of as capitalism today. You know, um, uh, all this money manipulation to, to make money, just to make money produce its, reproduce itself, which it doesn't, right? There has to be some industry, some product, some productivity associated with it. Uh, this is like the quintessential usury today because it's looking for money to be productive of money at all. That's it. Right? Doesn't produce anything else. So that really is usury taken to the nth degree today. But if the, the Vatican Bank were operating correctly, I mean, according to Catholic principles, uh, the, the profits made would not strictly be profits. They would be, uh, you know, the result of investment of, that was applied to uh, the seven spiritual and the seven, seven corporal works of mercy carried out to those in need throughout the world, acts of charity by the church. So to fund these acts of charity by the church would be most productive. The best investment one could make, right. really, when you get right down to it, and not usury. Okay. Cool. All right, then next one, Father. This is from a viewer in India who has a question. Uh, by the way, if I may add here, I don't want people running off to the Vatican Bank and, and <laughs> depositing billions of dollars to the Vatican Bank. No, the, the Novus Ordo has taken over now, okay? Yeah. So it's it's different. The IOR is stands for something very, very different right now, okay? <laughs> I mean, look at the, the Vatican Bank scandal. Yeah. Uh, with with uh, Archbishop Marcinkus of uh, of uh, Chicago, right, uh, and uh, the Banco Ambrosiano, right, and all of the graft and corruption and money laundering that was going on there, and it was all involving the uh, the Italian Freemasons, right, the P two. So uh, I mean, there are people who are being murdered over this. Uh, it was a terrific scandal. Even Archbishop Marcinkus, I understand, had to escape from the Vatican by helicopter. Because he was wanted in Italy for bank fraud. So this is the kind of thing that was going on. Some even suggest that uh, it led to the, the murder of uh, John Paul I. Remember that? That within a month of his uh, selection, he was done in by poison that the hypothesis digitalis did him in. Because when he saw what was going on, uh, he told, uh, was it uh, Cardinal Vio, uh, look, you're, you're finished as Secretary of State. You know, we're not going to have all of this corruption going on here anymore. And, um, and but within the month, it was not Vio who was dead, uh, gone. It was uh, Albanani, right? Albanani? Okay. I'm sorry. But in any case, um, it was uh, Paul, John Paul I who was dead. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, by the way, you, you notice now we have all this going on with our, uh, Archbishop Vigano, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, who denounced Francis as knowing and aiding and abetting the abuse of the young men and, uh, by his bishops and his cardinals. Well, remember Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano was actually in charge 
of watching, being the, the watchman over the Vatican Bank and the operations of Vatican City to make sure there wasn't corruption. And he did such a good job that they fired him. <laughs> Remember that? Because mm -hmm. uh, the Archbishop found quite a bit going on that he had to denounce, right? But he was trying to get some action taken. And that's, uh, that's where he ran afoul of uh, things. That's so I understand, right? Mm -hmm. But anyway, we're getting a little, a little foul of the topic, I guess. Yeah, you, you mentioned the uh, integrity of the Vatican when it, when it was first established. Now, what a difference. A yes, the original intention was a good one, and the original yeah. program was good. What a difference but it could a few be decades makes. Yeah. Okay, well, Father, then let's uh, get into this email from if you're in India who is um, questioning the church's position on yoga. He says um, apparently he is a Christian teacher in India, and he often receives questions about yoga from his students because they, uh, I guess they have this as part of a physical education program in their schools. So, Father, what is the church's position on yoga? Well, there are all kinds of yoga. I mean, well, I have to say, there are many different kinds of yoga, okay? Um, some of them just radically, you know, not right, okay? They talk about these forces within the body and so on. And uh, the chakras and all the other stuff, right? Uh, yoga is so bound up with uh, superstition, pagan superstition, uh, the forces of nature and so on, that it's very hard to separate it. If one were able to look upon it purely as a physical exercise, sort of like calisthenics, right? Um, then one could say, okay, this is perfectly legitimate as a form of physical training and exercise, because it does require a lot of physical control, builds up strength, builds up balance. These are all good things, right? But as soon as you start uh, adding a philosophy to these things, sort of like martial arts. I mean, martial arts can be in themselves perfectly good and right and useful um, in terms of self-discipline, in terms of strength and balance, and even self-defense, you know, for the good. But again, you know, you throw in all of this mystical, oriental mystical, uh, you want to call it religion, like superstition, and you've just corrupted the whole thing. It's like uh, kneading poison into a lump of dough that you're turning into bread. So um, it's very hard to make that separation. Uh, so much so that I would not want anything like that taught here, you know, we do have uh, some th those who are very expert in martial arts, various forms of martial arts, and yeah, we um, have the adults and some of the youngsters involved in that, but they're not taught anything but the Catholic faith in this. So there's just a, a, a real purified, they're purified of all superstition and oriental mystical cult type of religion. But with yoga, it's different. It's, it's much more difficult to make that separation of the two. So, um, and as far as the practitioners go, I'd say, uh, Tom, if you, if you were to look for a martial arts instructor who did not have any of this oriental mystical religions, the superstitions mixed in, you would find them. You would find teachers who could teach you just pure the martial arts moves and so on. Try finding a yoga instructor who does not have 
this quasi-mystical uh, slant to it, you know. It's, it's, I'm sure it's not easy to do, you know, from what I hear from people, um, that, that it's, it's really deeply embedded in the yoga mindset. So uh, I know people who do or have practiced yoga without any of that, you know, themselves, right? themselves but i i just say that it's much more difficult mm -hmm. to find especially to find instructors instruction and especially again you know if you're going to a yoga place and, and learning it in a yoga yoga class mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to escape that and father i think there could possibly be a connection between this yoga and this um this paganism that, that you've been talking about recently with the whole occult role in the um, covington catholic fiasco and and all of that and um i just th this yoga it, it's so prevalent nowadays that mm -hmm. um you can see this everywhere i've seen this you know out in in the public schools they're constantly having Pushing all, all the children do yoga have, doing certain poses or meditations or something it's in business meetings all the mm -hmm. time it's everywhere well the word you just used is very important though. yeah the meditation aspect of it that's uh that's kind of sums up what I was trying to say before, you know. But I, I know people who uh, have a very firm faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and, and uh, believe in the Blessed Trinity, absolutely, of course. And uh, they look upon yoga merely as a sort of a, uh, like gymna slow motion gymnastics almost, you know. <laughs> and, you know, in that sense, it can be useful if it's just slow motion gymnastics and nothing more than that. Sure. A physical exercise. Right. Uh, but you're right, it is being used, uh, it kind of weaponized yoga to bring the pagan meditation and the whole pagan mentality into people's minds and hearts and families. Sure. It's dangerous. All right, this question might be a little lighter. Father, I've wondered how to properly make the sign of the cross when one does not have use of one's right arm. Now seems an excellent time for Father to demonstrate. Well... I can, by the grace of God, now use my right arm to make the sign of the cross. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. But there was a time not long ago when I could not have done that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, not because of only painful, but it was impossible. Mm -hmm. My arm would not move that way. See? So, um, and I thank everyone for their prayers for the progress made. Um, and it is still uncomfortable for me to do that. But, uh, number one, the fact that it's possible is wonderful. You know, I rejoice in that. But even the discomfort, it, it helps remind me, as I'm making the sign of the cross, what our, our Lord's arm, arms felt like on the cross. And that's a very good reminder, okay? You just got a little tiny splinter, a tiny, tiny splinter of the cross in that. And even that is going away little by little. But I hope the memory of it doesn't go away. In any case, to get back to the point, Tom, you know, in the old days, uh, they did not have soap, water, you know, kitchen sinks, uh, lavatories everywhere. And uh, uh, the nomads in the, in the, in the desert and, and just even people in Europe. I mean, they didn't have the opportunity to wash up all the time, go to the well um, and haul water in buckets or whatever. And uh, so um, they designated one hand as the hand that they would use for clean things, and they designated the other hand uh, uh, that they would use for non-clean things, okay? 
Um, and the, the right hand was designated uh, as to be used for clean things. They would eat with the right hand, often fight with the right hand. Okay, that was considered, again, something honorable, though, because you were fighting for your life, for the life of someone you loved. It wasn't being, you know, uh, vicious or criminal. You would, um, you would shake hands with your right hand, right? In other words, all of the interaction you had uh, uh, in society and for your own personal, uh, you know, uh, nutrition and so on would be with your right hand. And the left hand was reserved for doing things that were considered to be somewhat dishonorable, private, I suppose, shameful, whatever, you know. And uh, so the left hand could be dirty, but the right hand should be clean, okay? And um, so the right hand is called dexter, right? And the left hand, sinister, okay, sinister. We get the word sinister from the word for left hand because the left hand was used to do sort of behind the back sort of things or out of sight sort of things, you know? And um, this was a, a very good expedient. It worked quite well for people at a time when um, they had to find a way to be hygienic when it was not so easy <laughs> to do that. But uh, of course, it, you know, we, we see this reflected also, you know, uh, um, in our faith, we see um, that the right hand was considered quite honorable, that our Lord sits at, at the right hand of the Father. It, we, it's true, right? We say that in the Creed. Uh, the good thief was crucified on our Lord's right hand. The other thief, whose name we do not know, uh, was crucified on the left hand of our Lord, and he was the one who was cursing our Lord. And the thief crucified on our Lord's right hand was told by our Lord, Amen, amen, I say to thee, this day thou shalt be with thee in paradise, because he had made an act of faith and asked our Lord to remember him when he came into his kingdom. So there is a real significance to the right hand and to the left hand, okay? So it's not a matter of indifference whether one makes the sign of the cross of the right hand or the left hand. All Christians and all Christian, uh, all the different rites of the, of the Catholic Church, and even the schismatics, right? They make the sign of the cross, they insist on the right hand, okay? Because that is what is considered honorable, okay? Now, if one cannot use the right hand, it is not wrong, it is not wrong to make the sign of the cross with the left hand. It's still the sign of the cross, right? And you might say, well, it's more convention, ecclesiastical convention to make the sign of the cross at all. The, the sign of the cross as we know it, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen, doesn't actually appear as such in sacred scripture and divine revelation, uh, but it is the doxology. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. It's a doxology put into prayer and sign, outward sign, see, as a sacramental. Could one do that honor, honorably with the left hand? One could if one had to. Um, one thing that I would like to check, though, is I would like to check matters liturgical by WIST, W-U-E-S-T, um, I'd like to check what it says there. I don't know that it actually says anything in the old matters liturgical before the changes came in, but it might actually say something about 
those who are not able to use their right arms. I'll tell you one thing, though. I mean, if a priest were impaired so that he could not use his right arm, ordinarily in the old days, he'd have to apply for a special permission to offer Mass without that, right? It wouldn't just be assumed that he, he could go ahead anyway. Um, when St. Isaac Jogues, right, <clears throat> was captured and tortured, and among the tortures was a, a rather horrible one of sawing his thumbs off with sharpened shells, right? This is what the Iroquois did to him. Uh, when he did escape and return to Europe, he actually had to seek special permission to be allowed to offer Mass, even though he was obviously already then a martyr, you might say, right? Um, he had a martyr's spirit, a martyr's soul. Um, he sought and he received permission to do so. But of course, the church's concern is that the Mass be offered correctly and without any danger of, you know, disrespect to the Blessed Sacrament. So Father Isaac Jogues, even then, would have had to have shown that he could offer Mass without his thumbs and he could offer it and the Blessed Sacrament would be safe. Um, so, um, so if a priest didn't have his right arm, I mean, he would have to, in the old days, have you know, sought some kind of dispensation from that. And uh, it could well be that he was given the permission to make the sign of the cross with his, with his left hand. Um, whether matters liturgical would say that or not, I don't know. But I, I would be, I, I can't help but believe that questions like that had been addressed to uh, the tribunals in Rome and been answered perhaps multiple times over hundreds of years. So um, I'm giving my own answer that I don't think there'd be anything wrong with it, mm -hmm. right? But uh, I intend to, uh, to look to see where there has been a formal, a formal approval of that by the church. Okay. All right, the next email, Father, concerning <coughs> the spiritual works of mercy. Sure says, as you eloquently stated a few weeks ago, we are required and obligated as Catholics to instruct, counsel, and admonish those who are in error or ignorant of God's law on important matters. However, you neglected to mention that before one begins to engage in this conversation with someone, you must have a reasonable expectation that the other person is open and willing to listen and seriously consider the instructions and teachings. There are some people who, no matter how prudently, gently, and non-judgmentally they are approached, become defensive and angry. The situation is then made worse, and the friendship you have with them may be severed, trust destroyed, and perhaps preventing you from ever having the opportunity to teach them through your good example. So, Father, could you please speak to this? Because doing more harm than good can be the unfortunate outcome. It can be, yes. Unfortunately, too many people use this as an excuse to do nothing. As they appeal, I'm not saying that's true about a writer here, but people... If they, if they find that they're risking something, uh, they would be somewhat reluctant to do so. So they, they might draw upon a false prudence to hold them back when God is actually giving them the grace to say something, right? Um, now, the point that you have to have a reasonable uh, confidence or expectation that the other person will react positively, um, I would say that is not really absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it's good that you do. I would, I would rather say if you have reasonable expectation the person will react negatively, then don't say anything. Okay, that's different though, okay? 
if I expect that you will react negatively for whatever reason, um, then uh, even perhaps if I if I correct you for blaspheming God, right, or if I try to instruct you in the mystery of the Blessed Trinity right, as foundation of our Catholic belief, and I have reason to expect that you will react very negatively, then yeah, prudence would prudence would dictate that I hold my peace. Okay, except if there are other souls involved and. They would be scandalized if I said nothing or did nothing, okay? Then my standing up for the faith is more important for them than your negative reaction. So even at that, I'm, uh, if I even anticipating a, a negative reaction from you, I might still have a very solid moral obligation before God to speak up for the sake of other innocent souls around who would be scandalized if I didn't, you know? Um, even if there were one person in the group who I thought would benefit from what I said, that might be over, over, uh, overcome entirely the objections to my going ahead and outweigh all of the objections to my saying something. If there were one person who would benefit from what I said. So it's not an ironclad thing. In other words, I'm not saying you have to have a, a real reasonable expectation that they're going to accept what you say. Um, what you can say is this, that, well, I'm going to pray to God, I'm going to pray to the Holy Ghost to inspire me as to what to say and how to say it. But I'm also going to pray for the individual. And when I say that, I don't mean that I have to go off and say, well, hold that thought, I'll be back in three days, I'm going to pray for you. I'm saying, asking God then and there, momentarily, oh Lord, please have mercy on this soul. Uh, I'm reluctant to say this because I, 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 you know, whatever, I might be embarrassed, uh, I, I'm, I'm risking being humiliated or whatever, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm going to do it out of love for you, out of love for God. Again, I pray that you'll give me the grace to represent the faith well and to the other person to receive it well. So the prayer is there. The grace, the grace requested is going to be there. What the person does with that grace, you can't control. You're just trying to respond to the grace that God is giving you. But Tom, you can't, you, you don't know how that other person is going to respond to that grace. You may think that, well, you know, this person is favorably disposed, so I'm free to say this and find out that that's not, you, you misread the situation uh, and they're really angry and offended. You know, you might find that out, but you might also find uh, that uh, you expect this person going to react very negatively. And again, they're cooperating with the grace that God gives him. And so they say, well, thank you. That is actually very helpful. You know, that removes an obstacle that has been in my mind against the Catholic faith all this time. You, you just, you just can't predict these things. Um, you still have to try to uh, provide for the best outcome, right? By uh, being well prepared yourself, by the knowledge you need, by having a strong faith and hope and love for God yourself, by wanting to respond to a grace that God is giving you. And you need to help the other person by praying for them and um, uh, in everything you do, showing that it's not a matter of challenging their pride and it's not a matter of, you know, uh, having a wrestling, a, a, a uh, 
wrestling match uh, against what they believe, but that you're motivated by a genuine love for God and a genuine love for them. All of that being said, though, you don't, you still don't control them. And neither does God. He gives them free will. Um, I would just caution not to use that as an excuse uh, to say nothing ever <laughs> to anyone. I would also um, caution one not to say, well, I have to have a reasonable expectation that this person will react positively. I'm saying that it's important to stand up for the faith unless we have a good, solid, reasonable expectation they will react negatively. Okay, Even then, there are circumstances when we still have to proceed nonetheless, right? So all of that taken into consideration. And I would say, finally, that if you do, in all goodwill, but a real charity, say something in the best way you can, in the most charitable way, that as far as you can tell is calculated to do the most good and the least harm, and the person reacts very negatively. Well, that's just one more thing for you to offer up for them. Saying, okay, I, I feel terrible about this, I hurt their feelings, whatever it is, I feel awful that they responded the way they did, they just started cursing and blaspheming even more, that's not what I intended, but Lord, I know this offends you, believe me, as you know, it also hurts me. I am grieving over this, but I'm offering my grief as a sacrifice to thee for this soul. And I can say to our Lord, my Lord, I know that you suffered for, the, for me because of the sins I committed against thee. Thou didst offer thy sufferings for this poor sinner. And now I'm going to try to do in a, my own little petty way for this other soul what you did for me. And that is, I'm going to offer the sorrow and the discomfort and the humiliation that this soul is heaping upon me, I'm going to offer this to God as a sacrifice so that graces may be given to convert that soul. We have those opportunities happen fairly regularly in life, and all too often we, we miss them. Uh, we don't see them as opportunities. We just see them as fiascos. But they are opportunities, sure. something to offer to our Lord. All right, um, we got just a few minutes left, Father, so let's try and get through one more email. There's a few questions in this one. Just to begin with, I know this viewer said, I know it is a sin to sell sacraments, but is it, it, is it a sin also for the person who would buy them because they believe they need them? Yes, it would be a sin. I mean, put yourself in the place of someone who says, I need the sacraments, and I... I'm going to go bind them, buy them. This this priest, this cleric, whoever he is, will not give me the sacraments, so uh, I will have to purchase them from him. Immediately, one realizes, well, wait a minute. What kind of a priest is this, right? <laughs> I, I want him to absolve me, and I'm promising uh, $20 for mortal sin. <laughs> this is absurd. Uh, the whole idea of, of buying the sacraments out of goodwill because I need I need absolution, I'm going to pay for it. Immediately you question, well, who is this? This can't be a Catholic clergyman. And I'm complicit, actually, in his mortal sin of simony or simony. And I am actually the one who is the motive for which he is committing the sin. So I think rather than having this scenario of offending God in this way, 
I simply have to cast myself on God's mercy, ask for the grace of perfect contrition before I would suborn a, a, a corrupt clergyman into committing a sacrilege by offering him money for, mm -hmm. for absolution or, a, God forbid, you know, a, a host. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. It's, it could never be justified. Okay. Then another question concerning the sacraments. He says, what sin is committed, if any, by obtaining holy orders from a known unworthy bishop in order to propagate the faith? seems to me that using someone else to get holy orders is not holy, but perhaps you get the orders without the holy. Not the sacrament of our Lord. Uh, holy orders is holy orders, okay? And one can steal orders, like you say. Uh, they can be valid, but they are very unholy. And in this case, it would be very unholy to do that. Okay. Um, to go to an unworthy uh, minister of the sacraments, um, that would not be right. Again, it's 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 a it's basically um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Suborning, uh, enticing another person, or provoking another person to do something sacrilegious. Uh, if if that minister is an unworthy minister, it would be sacrilegious for him to confer sacraments, right? Mm -hmm. And to say, well, I need them because I I have something to do with them. And um, it, it's it's not. Do you, th do you think our Lord would would make that necessary? Would really require that? Make that necessary of a person to do that in order to, uh, uh, you know, provide the Catholic sacraments and and uh, sacrifice the mass to people to go to an unworthy minister in order to do that? No. no. Um, there would be our Lord would be contradicting himself if he would do that. And he can't do that. Okay. I've actually had a traditional priest, a traditional Catholic priest, once tell me that in the circumstances today, he believed that it was perfectly legitimate for a Catholic to go to a, let's say, a, a Greek or Russian Orthodox schismatic bishop and to be ordained and consecrated a bishop. Perfectly fine. My question to, to him would be, well, if someone went to a Greek Orthodox bishop for the sake of ordination of the priesthood and consecration to the Episcopacy, would that make him a Catholic priest and would it make him a Catholic bishop? And in his mind, in the mind of this priest, well, yeah, but I mean, that, it wasn't really the essential question. It didn't really matter that much. And I'm thinking, this is the road to schism. This is absolutely, absolutely uh, forbidden. And it's, it troubled me that one uh, a, a, I considered in, in so many respects a, a really fine upstanding <coughs> traditional Catholic priest could come to that, that he would actually have convinced himself of this. But he believed, it, there's no doubt in my mind, that he believed it was true. And uh, I just told him that I thought that was terribly wrong and uh, terribly on the, just totally on the wrong track. It would be what I would say was doing something that was absolutely forbidden by all Catholic tradition. And you can't do something that is in violation of all Catholic tradition. That is something that all Catholic tradition condemns, saying this can never be justified. Um, and say, well, this is how I'm going to save Catholic tradition. It's a contradiction in terms. Our Lord doesn't work like that. Sure. He doesn't want us to work like that either. Sure.
All right, then the last question, Father, can you explain the differences between sins that are directed against our neighbor and sins that are directed against God and his church? Can you help this viewer, he asked, help him to understand the gravity of sins that are directed towards our Lord and his church versus sins that are directed towards our neighbor? Well, Tom, you saved the best wine for last. Uh, that, that could take a while, okay? <laughs> but the short answer is... Sin, as such, is a violation of God's law, okay? So, properly speaking, sin cannot be against another human being, okay? I mean, the, the Novus Ordo talks about um, sinning against mankind, sinning against human dignity, sinning against Mother Earth, the environment, and all that stuff. But sin, properly speaking, is an attack on God, God's will, God's sovereignty, right? Um, God's law. So, um, the uh, properly speaking, uh, sin would would be a matter of either uh, deliberately turning away from God and turning toward a creature, basically saying, "God, look, I cannot love this and love you at the same time. You've forbidden me." Right, uh, to, that I, I cannot have this and I cannot have the love of you. I choose the love of this thing. You get out of my soul, okay? There's no room for the love of thee in my soul. I choose this thing in, in thy place. It's like setting up an idol in one's soul. That's a mortal sin, okay? There are other sins that are not really the adversio, uh, deo, turning away from God, but they're sins of weakness. They still have the conversio creatura, uh, creaturis, uh, creaturam, I should say. And they still have that turning toward the creature. But that's more out of weakness. And those are the venial sins, okay? Um, but, um, you know, when we talk about sins against our neighbor, we're really talking about um, something we do that is against the virtue of justice or against the virtue of charity toward our neighbor, right? And, um, but these are sins because they offend God, who commands us to be charitable, to be just, and so on. So there's still a negation of God's law, a denial of God's law in my treatment of another person. But it makes them sins as they are, offense, are offenses against God, always, okay? Uh, if I offend my neighbor, but not in such a way that I offend God anyway, if I just offend him, it's not a sin against him. There's such a thing as a sin that is not an offense against God. Um, so, um, you know, we have to be kind of care we have to be very careful in the use and the abuse of the term sin in the modern modernist lectionary today because uh, they want to really not only equate giving offense to man with giving offense to God, they want to make it actually worse to give offense to man than to give offense to God. And so with that, they can, they can justify virtually anything, even abortion. Rather than give offense to man, um, I would rather give offense to God. And what do we read in sacred scripture? It is, it is um, not not acceptable that I should uh, offend God in order to please men. 
We say that in the Stations of the Cross, don't we? Right. Um, so this is what uh, this is what Pontius Pilate did, right? Uh, even perhaps believing that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, whom he was about to condemn, might have been a god, according to his pagan belief, from the note that he got from his wife, he would rather do that than offend Caesar. But here we have people who believe in the true God in heaven. And they are willing to offend him rather than give offense to anyone in the world. And uh, that is a formula for disaster. It's also the, the road to hell. So uh, we have to be willing to uh, give offense to the whole world if we have, in order to be faithful to God, in order to be faithful to our Lord. When the Antichrist comes, there'll be very few who will make that choice to be faithful to God and give offense to the Antichrist and all mankind following him. But they will, they will be willing to do that because their love for God will be that great. Their love for the truth will be that great. We have to not only try to be those who love God that much now, but we have to try to set that example for the young people today so that they will be able to meet that challenge too sure. when it comes to them. So. Sure. Well, Father, let's, uh, let's end with that real quick. I wanted to mention today is the feast day of St. Francis de Sales. So to end on a, a happier note, what words of advice would St. Francis of de Sales have for us today? Well, uh, St. Francis de Sales had a very hot temper, naturally speaking. He was very choleric, right? And he had to work long and hard to get that temper under control. The irascible appetite and all the other hot-headed elements, you know, the Tabasco sauce and the, uh, you know, it's like all, they were all mixed in in his uh, character, his temperament. So, um but by the grace of God, and through the uh, the blessing of the growth of humility in his soul, inspired by his love for God, he was able to master that and gain that control. But he always was humble enough to recognize that he was in danger of, of losing that temper if he didn't maintain custody of it. He had to have a an, an actual... Uh, deliberate custody of his feelings, his, his, uh, of his temper. <clears throat> and he feared letting it slip out of his grasp, okay? A lot of humility in that to realize uh, that he was never free of it, okay? There are people who say, well, when do you stop being subject to these temptations of impurity or drunkenness or whatever? And then the answer is when you die. You have to fight this battle as long as you live, right? Now, I just said we'd rather offend the entire human race than offend God, okay? <clears throat> Ideally, you don't want to offend either, okay? So we, we will, do not want to offend God. We don't want to offend anybody else in the world either. I mean, St. Saint, Saint Paul says that, give offense to no man, right? Be at peace with all insofar as is in you. So when I say what I just said earlier, I'm not saying... Yes, go ahead and offend everybody. You know, that's, you know, just to be sure we're giving glory to God by offending everybody. No, that's what those black Hebrew uh, Israelites were doing. That's how they think. Offend everybody, that's how you're going to glorify God. We know that that is not true. Um, but insofar as there are people who are going to be offended by the truth and going to be offended by our true faith, it's inevitable. Then. 
That's a choice they make. If they're going to be offended by the truth, by what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful, that's the choice they make in rejecting the grace of God. Our allegiance has to be to God himself. St. Francis de Sales personifies that, okay? There's even a, an account about uh, an instance that happened in the streets of Geneva one day when he he uh, not only witnessed, but he was actually kind of party to a, a small group of people, I understand. Um, when, at a time when a young man there turned to his, not, not Francis de Sales' mother, but the young man's own mother, and he said something insulting to her. And this was uh, offensive to everybody there, you know. Uh, they, they saw what this young man did, and they thought it was really awful. And what St. Francis de Sales did <coughs> was, without a word, turn and walk away. And people were, well, maybe a little scandalized. Here's the bishop, right, of the diocese here. He has his flock here. These are his sheep. He's responsible for correcting their faults. He doesn't. He turns and he walks away. And afterwards, um, someone asked him, maybe one of the clergy, I don't know. I don't know if the story makes it clear. Ask him, why did you simply walk away? You, you heard what that young man said to his own mother and how offensive it was. Uh, shouldn't you have corrected him? And uh, St. Francis de Sales' answer was, yes, and I will. But at that moment, I was so angry at what that young man did. I knew that if I opened my mouth, I would lose in an instant what it's taken me 20 years to gain in terms of patience, right? So he said, I would not risk that, even that one instance, because he knew that he knew what that, he knew that surge of anger and he knew that he had to stifle that. So he, he found that it was necessary to turn and walk away. And I took a tremendous amount of self-control uh, to do that, okay? But people know that. I mean, especially the clerics among us know that. But... Yes, he was going to deal with that problem, but he knew that he was not capable of dealing with it then and there. Now, if it had been someone else, uh, a more mild-mannered character who has been uh, temperament that was standing there and heard this, he might have been able to deal with it immediately. But St. Francis Xavier's temperament kind of was an impediment that he had to overcome. And so he actually acquired the reputation of being the most perfect gentleman in all of Europe. But it didn't come naturally. It was the result of grace and cooperation with grace. So I guess that's the bottom line for all of us, isn't it? Cooperation with grace. Right. Father, thanks for being here tonight. We got through a lot. You're so. welcome, Doug. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.